0: Hey everyone,
1: Leonard Kim here, and welcome to another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree. Uh, today on our episode, we have Gia Words with us. She's a documentary filmmaker, and uh, she's been making award-winning documentary uh, documentaries, and she tells stories of people who've been wrongfully convicted to shed light on shortcomings of the justice system, uh, system and amplify voices that were silenced through unjust incarceration. So, uh, Gia, why don't you take a moment to, like, introduce yourself and tell us about how you kind of got into this industry and what brought you to really want to create documentaries of this sort
2: yeah absolutely I um, had a 20-year career in the fashion industry on the business development side and I obviously did that for a really long time and then I had my son and when he was you know when I obviously I left my job and I took a little time off um, and I was debating what I should do next and I didn't think I wanted to go back to what I used to do. And I was really, I'd been passionate about wrongful convictions for a long time. When I was 20 years old, I read a book called uh, The 16th Round by Reuben Carter. And it was this heartbreaking story of a man who was a boxer in the 60s and he was innocent and he was wrongfully convicted of murder and was in prison, had exhausted all of his appeals. And he wrote this book as kind of a, Plead to the public for anyone to help him. And uh, that book kind of made an impact on me and just stayed with me. I always remembered his words that, you know, he said that he didn't have any hate. He really was um, just looking for somebody to help him. And he said hate really put him in prison and that's not what would get him out. And just was really made an impression. And then years later, when I was taking some time off and I had my son. And the podcast Serial came out and I listened to Serial and I was hooked like the rest of the world. And that kind of desire to do something to help people who've been wrongfully convicted, you know, came up again. And I thought, you know, this is something I want to do. And so I, um, I organized a fundraiser for Adnan Syed, who is a subject of Serial. And as a result, I ended up doing, you know, a little bit of advocacy work for him and ended up meeting Jeff that way. And Jeff is the subject of my film. And that's what really led me to filmmaking. I decided I wanted to do something to help the cause. And I also thought that, you know, how could I reach the most people and how could I have the most influence? And I thought that was going to be through film and television. And so that's why I chose that medium.
1: Nice. It seems that the film industry is really tough to break into, uh, especially when you're coming... (laughs) completely different field altogether, especially in the fashion world for about 20 years. How how did you kind of make those moves to really break into the industry?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. You're not the first person to say that to me. It is a very tough industry to break into. Um, I kind of went in it very naively, which I'm thankful that I did because it probably would have been too scary to do otherwise. But I had so much experience in business development and marketing in my career. And so I applied that obviously to help uh, speed up the process. But more than that, I went back to school. I took a documentary uh, filmmaking workshop at New York Film Academy, and that was just excellent. Some of the professors there are Emmy-nominated filmmakers themselves, so you really got to learn from the best. And after I finished that program, I, the pandemic hit and everybody was stuck at home and you couldn't film and you couldn't do anything. And so I found that a lot of really seasoned filmmakers, people who had been in the industry for decades, were doing a lot of Zoom classes, like master classes. And so I joined I took 44 master classes over the course of the first few months of the pandemic. and because these people who are normally so busy and have no time and they're always on set and you know they have successful careers, they were all stuck at home too. and normally they're people who keep themselves very busy so I guess they wanted to do something related to film. so a lot of them even after the mastery classes were willing to hop on a call, they were very forth coming with their experiences with their network. They were happy to make introductions. So that really helped me propel the career change. That would really, really help. The funny thing is, I mean, the pandemic has been the worst thing that's happened to us in our lifetime. It's it's so horrible. Um, but it also lent itself to, to help me grow this business because everybody was available. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I definitely know what you mean, and the pandemic has really shifted things a lot where people who've had like absolutely no free time at all have had a lot kind of just spilled up out of nowhere.
2: Exactly, exactly, and that really, really lent itself well <laughs> to this uh, stage in my career change.
1: Yeah. So did you start filming your documentary before you took the master classes or kind of while you were doing the master classes?
2: I had already been filming it for a year. I started filming it when I enrolled at New York film Academy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. So when the pandemic hit and I took, yeah, I took the master classes. I was also stuck at home, so I was able to do a lot of the editing because editing is such a solo job. I used to sit it in front of the computer at an editing day and edit the film. So I used the first six months or so of the pandemic and the quarantine to just edit my film and take these classes online because that's really all I could do because we were stuck inside.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well wow, that was uh, taken like a lot of time to really go and get everything done uh, do you think uh, because of the, of the pandemic and staying at home it kind of freed you up to have a lot more time to really go and perfect the uh, uh, documentary that you were creating
2: yeah it really did it really did because I just had more time on my hands than I normally had before I was juggling you know interviews and shoots and, you know, hiring PAs to help it shoots and then editing when I had time in between. And it's an indie film, so we did it with just a, a crew of four people. So it was a lot of work. Everybody wore a lot of hats. So it did definitely give me a lot more time to focus on the editing, and, and I'm still working on it, of course. Um, the the film that's out right now is uh, mm-hmm. a documentary short called Conviction. It's on Amazon Prime. The film I'm working on right now is a feature-length version of Jeff's story. Um, and so it's it's a much longer film. So that's the one I'm still editing and working on right now. Ho- oh, nice. Hoping to release it next year. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it seems like a pretty difficult process, especially to get someone like Amazon Prime and a big company to really pick up a short. Uh, what was the process like for that?
2: Uh, you know, again, the master classes are what really, really helped me because filmmakers who have done this for a long time really helped me navigate the distribution process, which was mm-hmm. such a gray area. Is So there is no clear cut path to this. <laughs> so, you know, you can go through sales agents or you can go through um, entertainment attorneys or you can uh, go through production companies. There's lots of different ways to do it, but there isn't one really, you know, step-by-step process, but it's really the other filmmakers who helped me navigate that, that process. Also, the film got into 11 film festivals.
1: Nice. That's a lot of different film festivals to really get into. And do you think a lot of that was because of the timing of when that was released? Or do you think it had to do with more of the quality that came with the documentary and the story?
2: I think it was a combination. Um, one, Jeff Jeff Deskovic, who the story is about, his really? life story is just so compelling. So that definitely was played a big big part he it's such a human interest story um so that that helped of course and then I think we did a good job of telling the story uh, so that helped and then lastly I think the timing was actually really really great because there is such a focus on police misconduct right now and wrongful convictions and so many documentaries prior to mine releasing really blew up in the same genre like making a murderer and um, even jinx and things like that so there was a real um like audience audience attention for this kind of film right now, I think.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Especially right now, like the world's kind of shifted perspective a lot, and. I know if it was like maybe like five, six years ago, if these kinds of topics came up, they would have kind of been like blown over a little bit, but just because of all the tension that's kinda of like built up into the world and um, so many people being like forced to be at home and, and just seeing exactly where they're positioned, it's kind of let a lot of people just have a lot of emotions sink in and people really want a lot of change right now more than anything else. And I see it as kind of like the perfect storm for something like this really going out there and developing.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. It really has felt that way. And it's really funny how things worked out because you would think that the pandemic and all production being shut down and all theaters being shut down, you would think, as I thought in the beginning, that that was going to be really detrimental to releasing my film. But in the end, it's actually been a pretty good time to release it, even though we couldn't have our theatrical release and whatnot, because people are home and people are watching more TV than they have in the last decade. And so there's more eyes, you know, on the film. And then, you know, just because of the current climate and things that have happened, there's more attention on police misconduct. So the timing of the film really did work out.
1: Yeah, I can definitely see that. Do you think um, for the feature, once the long form one, do you think once that's released, it's going to be able to hit the others? Or do you think because of how the pandemic's all going, that this would be something else that's pretty much seen at home as well?
2: You know, I don't know. It's so hard to tell. I'm really hoping that mid 2021, when this film should be releasing, um, that we'll be past this pandemic, I'm hoping. And with the vaccine coming out, i hope that theaters can reopen and such, but who knew it would go on for this long, right? So it's hard to say.
1: Yeah, that is pretty hard to say, especially with the timing right now. Um, out of curiosity, what what kind of made you decide that filmmaking was going to be the medium for you to really go out there and do anything as opposed to maybe like making a podcast, making like a book or something else what what really led you down the path of filmmaking?
2: Oh I mean, that's a great question. You know, I debated a podcast for a long time, <laughs> and <laughs> the thing is that I knew nothing about podcasts. I didn't know how to do that. um mm-hmm. I have a twenty year background in photography as well, and so I really knew my way around a camera and so With that knowledge, like filmmaking or photography was what I leaned towards. I debated the podcast for quite some time, but I just really didn't even know where to start with it. And it was going to be something I'd have to learn from scratch. And then um, I mentioned Adnan Syed, who's um, the subject of the serial podcast. I was at his post-conviction hearing in um, Maryland. And I happened to be there, and there was a camera crew there. And it was just a few people, like maybe two or three people. And I didn't know what they were filming. I just assumed it was the news or something, you know. And then the family told us that... They were actually the HBO team, and they were working on a documentary called The Case Against Adnan Syed, which was Amy Bird's film that came out on HBO a year or two ago. And that really, that was my initial kind of intro to thinking about documentaries as a medium. I was watching them, and I was really surprised that there was only three people there. I mean, I thought, like most people we think HBO is such a huge production. I would have assumed it would have been like a Hollywood set or something, you know, but of course documentaries yeah. aren't filmed that way. <laughs> but in my mind, and I was naive and I didn't know any better, I thought that's what it would look like and it didn't. And so I was watching them as we were at dinner and stuff with the family and I was thinking, you know, I know how to work a camera and there's only three people here. I have friends that would do this with me and I thought, I can do this. I can make documentaries. And Thank God I was so naive because there's hundreds and hundreds of people behind the scenes that work on this, and it's definitely not a crew of three for HBO at all. (laughs) But uh, my my, uh, lack of knowledge uh, worked in my favor, I think. I came home. And I thought about it and I told my husband, you know, I think I want to make documentaries. And he also said, like, filmmaking's a really hard thing to break into. You know, are you sure? And we talked about it and we decided, you know, I could try. And so I enrolled into New York Film Academy. But that's what first, first gave me the idea of doing documentaries. I had been kind of racking my brain trying to figure out what I could do to help this cause. And other than just donating some money or, you know, planning this one small fundraiser, I didn't know what else to do. It just felt like such a big problem that not any one person could do that much for. And then when I saw them filming the HBO doc, it just clicked that, you know, people consume so much television and people love watching movies and there's also just a pop culture aspect to it where people will talk about it with their friends and they'll recommend it and, you know, they'll, they'll talk about what happened and what they liked and it just kind of takes on a life of its own and that's what made me think, you know, this would be the, ne- the, right, um, the right medium. And, and it's it kind of really worked out that way, too.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Other curiosity, how did you end up at the hearing? End up where? Uh, at the first hearing where you saw the HBO crew.
2: Oh, so uh, when I had first listened to Serial, I planned a fundraiser for Adnan because I believe in his innocence. And I was really, really moved and upset by the fact that this innocence boy was taken and put into prison and has been there for so long, and I wanted to do something to help, so I organized a fundraiser with a girlfriend of mine in New York, and um, when we were planning the fundraiser, she said... She said, you know, I know a guy that could be a speaker here, and that was Jeff. So that's how I met Jeff, who's from my film. And then as we were planning the fundraiser, we reached out to the family because we wanted to give them the funds. And so we ended up speaking to Adnan's family that way. And then they became friends. I've Now I've known them for years, for four or five years. And they are just the nicest, most, the sweetest people. And they're like family now. And so we had become close. And when Adnan's post-conviction hearing happened, I went there to see his family and just to support. And that's how I was there when the HBO crew was
1: filming. Wow, that's kind of fascinating. Uh, It's about time for us to hop off to a commercial break. If people wanted to find you online, where could they find you, uh, Gia?
2: Yeah, they can go to my website, which is just my full name. It's J-I-A-W-E-R-T-Z dot com. Or on Instagram, it's Gia Docs. It's J-I-A-D-O-C-S.
1: And they can find the film Conviction on Amazon Prime?
2: Yep, it's on Amazon Prime.
1: Exactly. Okay, and you can always find me at Mr. Leonard Kim on Twitter, and we'll be back after this commercial break.
0: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now visit facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for us at keyword voice america you have a message you want to share that message you want it to be social to go viral and spread across the planet but how do you get started? Tune in to Amplify, featuring host Ken Roshan, This show is here to help you take that message and channel it through the most effective marketing techniques to not only be successful, but have a positive impact on the world. Tune in live Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel and get Amplified.
3: channel we don't follow we leave join us the voice america
0: influencers channel this is grow your influence tree to reach leonard kim or his guest call into the program at 1-866-472-5795 that's 1-866-472-5795 or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey everyone, Leonard
1: Kim here with Gia Wertz and we've been talking about uh, how Gia got into documentary filmmaking, uh, especially to go out there and help people who've been convicted wrongfully of their crimes. And she's talked a little bit about Anod's story and also Jeff's story, who's over in Conviction, uh, her short film documentary that's on Amazon Prime right now, along with the long feature that will be coming out uh, mid-summer next year in 2021, I believe. And throughout this whole process, we've talked about how Gia kind of made that transition from working in the uh, fashion industry and how using photography kind of helped her choose the medium of going out there and picking filmmaking over as a platform as opposed to podcasting or any other forms of media and how that's kind of led to success with uh, being in about 11 different film festivals um, all through the pandemic because of how everyone's been working at home. And throughout this whole entire process, I mean, it seems that a lot of changes have really uh, happened to help propel you into the industry, Gia. Um In regards to all this, uh, <clears throat> do you see that It's a big difference compared to what you were doing before in regards to uh, the fashion industry, being able to go out there and do something that you're really actually passionate about. Yeah,
2: it's very, very different. I definitely find this. Um, line of work much more fulfilling, uh, that's for sure. Of course, I had to give up a really great salary from my old <laughs> job in order to do this. Um, but, you know, that's something that will come in time, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but I do, it's, there's, there's similarities in the way that the marketing aspect of it, because whether you're marketing a product or you're marketing this film, uh, it, it's very similar. But other than that, they are quite, quite different.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see it being quite different, especially, it's like two different ends of the spectrum. One's over in fashion, which is fun, unique, hip, trying to go out there and really get people to really buy into a specific design. And the other is uh, basically a human interest concern that a lot of people actually really care about. And I think with like the movement right now of how a lot of people are saying like defund the police, black to blue, and then there's like all these conflicting uh, uh, positions that a lot of people are taking, it kind of brings a lot of light into exactly what you're doing, and behind all the different perspectives that are going on, did you have certain perspectives that you kind of uh, felt uh, rise up while you saw all of this happen? Uh, did
2: you say different perspectives? Is that what you said?
1: Yeah, did you have a certain perspective that you kind of felt when you saw all of this come up, all, all the different emotions that people have been feeling lately?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a this is a big a big question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
2: but for for sure, for sure there there's just there's so much as far as wrongful convictions are concerned, police misconduct often leads to wrongful convictions, so that's definitely very very concerning. There was um there was a study done by um, it's like the police misconduct, some organization that studies that. And, and they said that one in 4.7 police officers have had like some kind of misconduct in the course of their career. And of course that misconduct could be much smaller things. It doesn't have to be, you know, something as big as a wrongful conviction, but it is concerning that there is that much of that that goes on. And then of course, when people, when people get, convicted of a crime or they're even just accused of a crime before being convicted, it often feels as though the public has such faith in, in law enforcement that they'll often believe that the person is guilty before that person is found actually guilty or even has a trial and things like that are very concerning. And that's where, that's where the onus is really on law enforcement to do their due diligence and and be very careful who they arrest or or um, accuse of a crime, because sometimes those people, after that point, don't get a fair shake. They don't get a fair trial after that point. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and I could definitely see that, especially because the officer has a uniform of authority, and a lot of people look up to the mm-hmm. uh, person's uniform, so then they take their word over the other person's.
2: Exactly. Exactly. There's a statistic. Um, it's, it's, I'd, I'd absolutely share it with you, um, over email, but it's that more than half of all lawful convictions in the States are caused by government misconduct. And like, wow. that's just so alarming and, and needs to be fixed. It's just not right. Cause a lot of these people like Jeff lose, Jeff lost half of his life at the point that he got released. He had lost half of his life and he was just an innocent person who didn't do anything wrong, you know? It's really, yeah. really heartbreaking.
1: For someone like that in that type of situation, where they lose half of their life for a wrongful conviction, does the government actually do anything for them, or law enforcement, or well, is it
2: not really? If they're exonerated, then some states have laws where you're eligible for some, you know, financial—I uh, don't know—supports the right word, but you know, to get granted some kind of financial game but in other states there are no laws like that and in those cases like in Jeff's case for example he had to go sue the prosecutor and the medical examiner himself and of course there's costs incurred with that whole legal process luckily in Jeff's case he won and so that was great for him but that doesn't always happen and a lot of people that are released whether they were guilty or wrongfully convicted don't get I should say, especially the people wrongfully convicted, when they're not given anything, when they're released from prison, they're let back into society without often a home or any money, or sometimes they've lost touch with all their families. They have nowhere to go. And it's really, really terrible because for the ones who didn't commit any crime, they've now had years of their life taken away from them and they're being released now into society with really nowhere to go and no means to do anything.
1: So they're basically like stuck starting off from scratch and it's as if their whole life was taken away from them.
2: hmm Exactly. I mean, Jeff almost ended up being homeless. He got really lucky that he got into college. He got, uh, I think college gave him a scholarship or something like that, and he got to stay in a dorm of some kind. And right before that happened he was going to be homeless and wow. Jeff. Yeah. And Jeff's story, like for example, he was 16 and he was just a high school student. He used to go to Peekskill high school. Um, he was 16 years old and this was a really safe town. Nothing had went wrong here for decades. As far as any major crime, I think there'd been no homicide in the last decade. It's not longer. And then there was this one rape and murder and it happened to a girl that attended Peekskill high and when the police came to question the students some of the students said oh you should talk to jeff he's kind of quiet he's kind of keeps to himself and that was all it took for the police to question jeff and then of course they wanted to solve the case because the city was so was so panicked from the crime they weren't used to having anything like this happen in their town and so they wanted to solve the case they thought they had the guy they thought it was jeff or I don't know if they really believed that or if they just wanted to solve the case and get it off their desk, but they ended up pinning it on him and he wasn't the one who did it. And, and then fast forward to when he gets out, he almost ends up being homeless and he was just an innocent 16 year old kid just going to school. So he happened to be quiet and so many people have, have that right. Like being quiet or awkward in school. And and it's just,
1: Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Crazy. Yeah, and I can definitely like see something like that where there's a lot of towns out there where uh crimes really just don't happen. So they're unaware of exactly what to do and from the panic and from how people feel they could really want to wrap something up quickly. And then on the other side of things, there's um, places where crimes happen like all the time, like in major metropolitan cities, where uh, since things just end up happening uh, at such a large frequency that I could see a lot of people kind of becoming like tone deaf exactly to what's going on and kind of like, running through their motions as opposed to really just investigating to truly figure out what is really going on behind the scenes and everything.
2: Absolutely. Yep, for
1: sure. Yeah, that's kind of a crazy place to be in, especially if you're on the uh, receiving end of all that, and especially if you're like the prime suspect, whether it's something you did or not, Like, that's a lot of pressure to really be under, especially for all the parties involved.
2: Yeah, and imagine all that at the age of 16. Like, if you think back, I think this often when I'm making the film and talking to Jeff and other people who've been wrongfully convicted. At 16, I mean, you're just a kid. You're not not savvy, you're wise, or, you know, you're doing kid things. You're not at all thinking, how am I going to navigate this false accusation of a murder that these detectives are determined to pin on me? Like, it just seems like an impossible situation to get out of
1: right yeah it does and it's kind of crazy that they just took the lead because a lot of people just said talk to him he's quiet and that's not even really an indicator that he's actually done anything
2: yeah i know i know he was quiet and then the second thing that happened was At Angela, the girl who was murdered at her wake, uh, Jeff was crying a lot. And when I talked to him about it now, he said he was crying a lot because it was his first brush with death. He had never dealt with death before. So it was really scary and, you know, sad to him. So he was crying a lot. But the police uh, interpreted that as him feeling regret for what he did. So they thought he was crying so badly because. He had remorse or something like that. So that was the second kind of thing that cemented their thought process. And then third, the NYPD had a, um, you know how they do like criminal what um, profiles, who they think would likely have done it, that person's profile. Well, the profile they came up with fit Jeff. They thought it was somebody that would know her, somebody that, you know, it was a personal connection, that kind of thing. What it turns out, in reality it wasn't that at all. It was some random stranger that did it. But Jeff happened to fit the NYP profile too. And so I guess with those three things the cops thought they had, you know, they they had the right guy, I guess. But looking back as we're talking, if you look at those three things, it seems like that's barely anything. You know, not none, none of it ties him to the crime at all.
1: Yeah, especially like the crime part. Like I know from just personal experience, I cry a lot about a lot of random things. <laughs> so, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> the crying man kind of doesn't really tie anyone to anything because, like, uh, some people are just extremely sensitive and they feel a lot of pain and hurt and they feel empathetic or hurtful or, or sad when they see other people in pain or when they hear about some things like that. Like, I don't really see how, like the crying element could really make per- someone, like, a key suspect in uh, a crime, especially at the age of 16 when, like you said, it was his first experience with uh, being so close to death, like, that could make anyone really cry, and if someone's actually not crying, then that could be more alarming than anything else.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I've often said this too about Jeff, that to think that the one person who was crying a lot at her wake is the person who gets put at the age of 16, 17 in a maximum security adult male prison. I mean, he, like you just said, he was a very sensitive person and empathetic person. And then he's the one who gets put in this horrific environment where everybody is violent and dangerous and I can't even imagine being in that position
1: yeah and what's worse is he gets tried as an adult as opposed to uh, a child I, I mean to get put into maximum security at the age of 16 that's just like uh, crazy especially when he should have been like tried as a minor if he was yeah young. absolutely yeah so, I mean, that's just, that, that's just, like, the legal board going, like, above and beyond for, uh, in the wrong way. I guess above and beyonds not really the wrong, right words, but, like, taking extremely huge... it too far, for, yes. Yeah. It's just so hard to even word yes. the situation. And to know, like, things like that could even potentially happen, it just makes things a lot more scarier. And I think... Um, a lot of this light has kind of been shed on what's been going on in the world and I think a lot more people are becoming aware but I don't really know how fully aware people are right now especially with everything that's been happening because it seems that it's caused a lot of division inside the world as we we know it right now
2: Yeah, absolutely it is is. It it is sometimes it's hard to articulate this, just how incensed and how horrible this whole world can be, for sure, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to make films like this and shed light on this cause, because I also think that majority of people who haven't had any personal experience with a wrongful conviction or police misconduct or anything like that, majority of people trust, like I was saying earlier, law enforcement, and they don't think of this. When they think of causes to get behind, you know, whether it be, you know world hunger or adoption, you know, foster care or anything else, bigger things that are kind of on your radar, people often don't think of wrongful convictions as a cause that they need to support or get behind. One, because they support or believe in law enforcement. And two, it's just not something that's really top of mind unless it's affected you personally. So it's uh, it's really an important cause, I think, to, to support.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, it's about time for us to hop off to another commercial break. Um, if, you, if anyone wants to find Dia Wirtz online, you can find her at jiawertz.com, or you can visit Amazon Prime and watch the show Conviction, and we'll be back after this commercial break.
3: Voice America is available on your Google-connected device.
1: Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio.
3: Try it today. Get Unchained. Influencers Channel.
0: channel
3: are you ready to move to your next level listen for empowering women transforming lives with host rebecca hall greider each show will focus on a central topic with discussion guests and your questions being featured our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement inspiration and practical steps to support them on their journey empowering women transforming lives can be heard live every thursday at 11 a.m pacific time 2 p.m eastern time on the voice america influencers channel and join us for a replay of the show on wednesday at 2 p.m pacific time 5 p.m eastern time on the voice america empowerment channel change starts here change starts now join us the voice america
0: influencers channel This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey everyone,
1: Leonard Kim here with Gia Wirtz, and we've been talking a lot about uh, police and documentaries and Jeff's story, uh, and how Jeff has gone out there and been an innocent person who's kind of been wrangled along through the police and legal system for a long period of time. Uh, Gia, I had a question for you. Around how many innocent people do you think are living in prison in America right now?
2: Yeah, so the Innocence Project has a very conservative estimate, and they say that there's about 2 to 5% of all U.S. prisoners are innocent. So if you look at the prison population in America, that would be about 120 or a little over 120,000 people. That's a lot. And I mean, that number is so, yeah, isn't it? Because if you think about the impact that wrongful conviction has on not only the person who's in prison, but all their loved ones, their family, their friends, their finances. It's 120,000 families, you know, that are dealing with this or more possibly.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a lot of people. And I can see how uh, important it is to really go and shed light to this type of situation so a lot of people are publicly aware of what's going on. Uh, Do you think your uh, documentary has the ability to shed a lot of light onto this? So a lot more people are bringing attention to what's kind of going on in uh, today's legal system. And do you think that's going to be able to impact some type of change?
2: You know, I hope so. That's really my goal. And this is just the beginning for me. It's my first film and I'm working on two more right now. And so I hope to impact change in the future, but in the very little bit of time, you know, the film released on Amazon in August. So it's just been a few months. And in that little bit of time, First of all, Jeff, the subject of the film, he has a nonprofit organization called the Je- Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation, and he helps people who are currently wrongfully convicted. He helps free those people, and so by supporting, by by showcasing Jeff in my film, I'm supporting his work. And he does such great work that I feel like that's one way that we're helping. You know, Jeff himself has said to me that he's gotten about fifty percent more um, opportunities as far as press and, and media to get his, the word out there, and I think obviously that's going to have an impact with how much support he gets for his foundation. And then in addition to that, um, I've been invited to do a few talks. I did a, a screening and a Q&A at Hamlin University, and then we did two at uh, Peekskill High School and Austining High School. And the really cool thing about doing that for law students, especially at Hamlin University, is Those are the students that will go on in the future, you know, to be jurors or lawyers or work in law enforcement or, if nothing else, just voters who are going to vote in the right people, hopefully, into the positions that can impact change for people who've been wrongfully convicted. So it's been a short little while, but I'm really happy to see the momentum that we've gotten, and hopefully all of that will have a trickle effect to make a bigger impact.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see that. Is there a certain type of result that you were particularly looking for from all of this?
2: Yes, yes, I was. my My real personal goal is to is to work on my next film about somebody who is currently incarcerated and who is wrongfully convicted, so that I can not only shed light on their story, but hopefully work with a PI and uh, uncover maybe new facts or something that will help their case. And then in addition, just give them an opportunity to have a voice and to tell their side of the story, because often people who are in this position get forgotten about. They're in prison and they don't have a voice. They have no outlet to, you know, they don't have internet or computers or anything, so they can't reach the outside world. And so that's my personal goal, is to help somebody with my next film who is currently in prison and hopefully, hopefully be able to help them in any way work towards freedom.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a great cause and everything. Uh, I think that brings me to another question. Um, How... How does someone like uh, yourself determine whether someone's telling the truth or if they're like lying about whether or not they did something or didn't do something?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I had this question myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am definitely not the person who determines if somebody is innocent or not. Um, I Like, for example, Jeff has been exonerated. So I knew he was innocent. And in Jeff's case, um, I don't want to give this away because I don't want to spoil the film for anyone who's going to go watch it. Um, But there is a scene in the film that will really confirm for you that Jeff is innocent because there is undeniable proof, um, not only in DNA, but in another way as well. And so in Jeff's case, it was obvious, you know, that he's innocent, he's out and he's exonerated. Um, And then since Jeff works in, wrongful convictions and has its foundation and is an expert in this area, he um, will often tell me about cases where people are innocent. So I leave it to the experts to determine if someone is innocent or not. I'm just the one who will tell their story, you know, through a documentary. But in working with uh, some people at the Innocence Project and working with Jeff, a couple of things that I've learned is there's a few markers that are, that are key to determining someone's innocence and one of those is Somebody who's been incarcerated for a long time, who maintains their innocence over years and decades, every time. They don't waver. They don't say, oh, I did it. Oh, no, I didn't do it. Oh, you know, I did it with so-and-so, or I did it because of this. They just maintain their innocence, that they didn't do it at all. And there is no physical evidence tying them to the crime. And then the second thing is when people who are incarcerated come up for parole after they've served a certain amount of time, they have an opportunity to go up to the parole board and, and the parole board looks for people to show remorse. They want to know, like, if you have an opportunity to get out on parole, will you be a functioning good member of society or will you, you know commit more crimes and one of the things that the parole board looks at is that you say you know kind of sorry for what you did you show remorse you understand that it was wrong because I guess from their point of view they think understanding that it was wrong is one step to show that you won't do it again the tricky thing is people who are innocent they're not going to show remorse because they didn't do it. They don't have remorse because they actually didn't do anything. And so these people will go up to the parole board over and over, sometimes after serving 10, 20 years plus, and they, instead of saying, you know, yes, I do show remorse, yes, let me out on parole, just because they want to be free and see their families, they just maintain their innocence. They say, no, I didn't do it. And that is a really interesting thing because it indicates their innocence because they're willing to stay in prison longer just to clear their name, and huh. even though they have an opportunity to get out. You know, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, like, even if someone has the opportunity to go free, they'll just go and maintain their original uh, conviction because that's what's true to them, and even freedom isn't worth the truth. Not being... Being compromised. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty crazy.
2: And it it is crazy. And what's really crazy is how the parole board works, because if showing remorse is, like, almost mandatory in order to get out on parole, then that also, again, works against the people who are innocent, because they will never, ever show remorse, because they didn't do anything. So it hurts them again. So it's really... The system is definitely broken in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, I can see that. With Jeff being in prison for such a long period of time, do you think that changed who he is as a person? Because it seemed before he went to prison, he was pretty empathetic and uh, crying a lot and being a good, decent human being. Do you think that prison um, experience changed him?
2: You know, I asked his mom this question when I interviewed her, and I don't know, because, of course, I didn't know Jeff prior. Um, I would just assume, you know, just a complete assumption on my part, that, of course, it's changed him as a person. But Jeff is still a very empathetic person. And so it didn't change that about him, for sure. He's devoted his entire life to helping other people who are wrongfully convicted. Um, So that way, it didn't change him. But I know Jeff says himself that he has a lot of after effects of, of um growing up in prison, and those things impact his, you know, day-to-day life negatively. As Like, for one example, he can't deal with loud noises. They really bother him, and he explained this to me. He said that, you know, when you're in prison and you're in a cell, you can't see everything. You're in these concrete walls, and when you hear loud noises... It's usually a sign of something going down, whether it's danger or guards are coming or someone is fighting or someone's in an attack. He said the sound of keys jingling um, bother him because the guards hold a lot of keys on their keychains. And then they walk, the keys jingle in, in the corridors and things like that. And he said loud thuds and noises like that often mean someone's being, you know, violent or someone being hurt. And so you'd really get in tune to sounds. And I've noticed it myself when I've been with Jeff and let's say the phone rings or something unexpectedly, he is visibly affected by that. And so it's really interesting and sad, you know,
1: to see. Yeah. And I could definitely see the environment kind of really changing someone, especially to, <clears throat> when a lot of people say that we become a product of our own environments, um, if someone's been in the prison system a lot, I could see how that could really change who they are, but it doesn't seem like it's changed who Jeff is fundamentally.
2: It really hasn't. I asked him, I said, when you got out of prison, and then you finally got your settlement, and he got a big settlement when he sued the prosec- uh, Sorry, the uh, detective." Mm -hmm. And I said, why didn't you just, did you ever want to just take your money and like, you know, go to Barbados or somewhere and just live a nice life on the beach away from people and, you know, enjoy your life and just relax? Like what an ordeal it would have been up, up until that point. And he didn't even hesitate. He said, no, not at all. He said, I would essentially be leaving everybody behind who's in the same position that I was in. And he said that he met people in prison who were innocent and he could never walk away from them because he wanted to help them, and he's been out for I think fourteen, thirteen, fourteen years, and he's devoted his whole life to helping other people who are in this position still to this day. So definitely is a very empathetic person with a very big heart and a a very. Uh, he's very goal oriented. He knows what he wants to do, and he's always working towards that, wow, which that's is really
1: great. great. Yeah. And it's pretty uh, spectacular, especially for all the different things that everyone's kind of going through and how amazing that's all really been in this entire process for him. And especially for you to go out there and create a documentary of this sort. Out of curiosity, uh, what's kind of next for you?
2: Uh, You know, I just am working on finishing this feature-length film, which I want to release in 2021. And I'm just starting to write um, the third one that I'm working on, which is about somebody who's currently incarcerated. And that one's in the really beginning stages. So I'm just just getting started on that. And uh, beyond that, I am looking for stories of other people who are incarcerated, who are wrongfully convicted, to who I could possibly create documentaries about in the future, in the next year or so. But that's it. My goal is to really keep making stories about wrongful convictions just so I can shed light on the cause. So that's really it for me.
1: That's awesome. Well, for everyone who's listening to the show, uh, take a moment to go and check out Amazon Prime and check out Conviction. Uh, follow Julia Wertz. Uh, you can visit her website at jiawertz.com uh, to learn more about what she's doing in the next feature-length film. Um, if you know anyone who's been wrongfully convicted, maybe you can introduce her to them as well so then she could potentially make more documentaries and feature films about them. Um, thank you Everyone, for tuning in to listen to another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree. Uh, you can always find me, Liz, uh, Leonard Kim, on Twitter at Mr. Leonard Kim. And once again, thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode, and we'll see you all next
0: week. Thank you for making us part of your week. Listen for Grow Your Influence Tree with Leonard Kim every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Stand out, stand apart, and become a top influencer. We'll see you here next week.